Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Rabbi Judy Schindler and Judy Selden Cohen, co-authors of Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America. Recharging Judaism calls American synagogues to take institutional stands on social justice issues, explaining why this is appropriate with Jewish texts, and showing how to implement change with helpful frameworks. But it's not just a message for Jews, because everyone should be able to draw inspiration from the idea of a minion on the move, where a gathering of ten or more souls take their faith outside the congregation to stand firmly rooted in support of people from all walks of life who need allies to stand and fight injustice. This book, which was a finalist in the National Jewish Book Awards, is a call to action, inviting civic engagement, trumpeting how such engagement can recharge a synagogue, and observing how such action can bring different faiths together in support of common human causes. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. We start the show with the co-authors reading from early in the book, where they illustrate why it's necessary to travel upstream to do the work of civic engagement. Let us travel upstream. Volunteerism as the first step in civic engagement. Marriage equality in Washington State, gun legislation in Massachusetts, housing homeless families in North Carolina, better working conditions for tomato pickers in Florida. What do these causes have in common? Synagogues strengthening their communities and this country through civic engagement. Every day, synagogues across all streams of Judaism mobilize their members to shelter the homeless, heal the sick, and comfort the bereaved. Some also go further, enlisting congregants to advocate for changes 
that address the sources of these crises. Not only sheltering the homeless, but also creating more affordable housing. Not only healing the sick, but also improving access to health care. Not only responding to the tragedies of mass shootings, but also preventing gun violence. As more synagogues embrace all the steps of civic engagement, they recharge Judaism, benefiting their congregants, their synagogues, and this country. Activists of many faiths use the following parable to preach the power of leveraging volunteerism as the first step in alleviating suffering. A villager sees a stranger thrashing in the current of the nearby river. Without stopping to think, the villager jumps into the river and pulls the stranger to safety. Soon, a schedule of lifeguards is established, and every few days, another villager is hailed as a local hero after pulling another stranger from the river. As more and more resources are devoted to rescues, finally, someone stands up and says, maybe we should travel upstream and see why so many people are falling into the river. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. praises this volunteerism or social service for allaying hardship while also exhorting us to address the root causes of that hardship through seeking social justice. So it is with Jews volunteering in the community. We can line the proverbial river with lifeguards pulling out strangers who fall into the current of hard times. And we can also travel upstream in civic engagement, enlisting our synagogues to remedy the sources of this suffering. Rabbi Judy Schindler is the Sklut Professor of Jewish Studies and Director of the Stan Greenspan Center for Peace and Social Justice at Queen's University of Charlotte. She's contributed chapters and articles to more than 10 books, in addition to working with Judy Selden Cohen, the co-author of the book, Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America, she's the author of a book of, a book of life, a collection of Rabbi Judy Schindler's sermons, and she's a consulting editor of Deepening the Dialogue, Jewish Americans and Israelis Envisioning the Jewish Democratic State. Many honors have been bestowed on her, including Charlotte Woman of the Year 2011, and Mecklenburg Ministries Interfaith Clergy Award 2008. She was named Rabbi Emeriti of Temple Bethel in Charlotte after serving as Senior Rabbi from 2003 to 2016 and as Associate Rabbi from 1998 to 2003. And while at Temple Bethel, she led the creation of four social justice documentaries being utilized across the country, three of which earned Telly Awards. Author Judy Selden Cohen is a community advocate who spent the last 10 years collaborating on social justice issues with Rabbi Judy Schindler, her then synagogue rabbi and now co-author. Prior to researching and writing Recharging Judaism, their work included establishing the first Jewish sponsored site for the Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools and creating two award-winning documentaries, Souls of Our Students, Appreciating Differences, and Souls of Our Neighbors, Fears, Facts, and Affordable Housing. Judy Selden Cohen is also a lay leader at Temple Beth Ellen Charlotte, where she served on the board, led the Social Justice Committee, and represented the temple in the community. 
outside the synagogue. She advocates for homelessness solutions and has served on nonprofit boards. She edits and writes for the blog series faithandhousing.org, sharing stories of how congregations of all faiths are creating affordable housing. One thing that I have struggled with, my kids are 10 and 6, is how do you get them involved and get them understanding how important social justice and social action are. Judaism obligated us to work to make the world a better place. Many people find their Jewish path through prayer. And many people find their Jewish path through learning. And many people find their Jewish path through youth engagement. And many people find their path through incredible social justice. This is a time when we are called to act. We are called to act as Jews. We are called to act as Americans. We are called to act as Jewish institutions to bring our values into the secular world in which we live. Synagogues have windows for a reason, so we can be connected to the pain of our world and respond. So, hey, listeners, we got to have a little ground rule here to start with. We got two Judys in the studio today, so we got uh, Ra- we're going to call Rabbi Judy. Rabbi Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. And uh, we got Judy selling. We're going to call you Judy today, right? That's lovely. Right, Thank you. We got Judy and Rabbi Judy. Okay, we're going to keep that keep that straight. So, before we get into the conversation today, you've written a book together. So, having done that, my first question is: Are you still friends? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think I went into a little withdrawal after the book was done because we weren't spending time together every week. Yeah, and, and y'all probably did spend a lot of time together, right? Yeah. We did, yeah. yes. And we're going to talk about that in the Writing Life segment, of course. But uh, And before we get started, I need to make a few disclosures. I am not Jewish, but I am curious, okay? I am, I am interested in civic engagement, and my daughter married a Jewish woman, and she has converted to Judaism, so... And because she's very engaged in civic engagement, I thought, well, there's something must be to this. So I got to figure out a little bit more about this. So, uh, so let's start a little bit with some of your stories here, Rabbi Judy. You, um, you know, there's a lot of history in, in Jewish life. History, in fact, drives Jewish people to some extent. You've got a history. Well, it was a tough history, but right. it really drives my everyday experience and my everyday work. My father was born in Munich, Germany in 1925. My grandfather wrote for an underground newspaper. He was a poet and an author himself. Okay. And he read Mein Kampf. He knew what Hitler intended to do, and he spoke out against Hitler in an underground newspaper. Hitler came to power. January 30th, 1933, there was a Reichstag fire in February, and in, uh, Hitler declared a state of emergency and proposed legislation to dismantle democracy and went to arrest anyone who would oppose that legislation. My grandfather knew he would be arrested. He slept at a Jewish hospital and managed to get out first to Austria and ultimately to Switzerland. My father and grandmother were there. Um, till 1938. So I carry that history. And if my if my grandfather could speak out against Hitler, I certainly can speak out against issues and stand for those who are marginalized and oppressed in America. Mm. But the second part of my story I learned in the summer of 2018. I was going to Berlin, and I received an invitation from family in Israel that these stumbling stones, the memorial, these memorial stones would be placed in the sidewalk outside uh, the house where Judy Schindler, my great-aunt, once lived. And I learned on the street in Berlin, looking at this memorial stone, these stones, that she was 32 years old when she died. She was deported on September 5th, 1942, to 
uh, Riga, Latvia, and murdered on September 8, 1942. Mm. She was murdered with her 34-year-old husband and her five children, ranging in ages 10 to 2. And you take your name from? Uh, well, I, I, I never knew I was named for Judy Schindler. I knew I was right. named Judy. But right. I learned throughout the course of uh, uncovering my family's history that she was a rabbi's wife, so she was a Robinson teaching Judaism. Mm-hmm. And B, I learned that she was so young, and her name was indeed Judy Schindler. So I was named Judy, I thought, for a great aunt who perished in Auschwitz. But indeed, she was deported to Riga, Latvia, with her family on a cattle car with 783 other people. The ghetto was not ready in Riga, so they marched them out to a forest and shot them all. Mm. And uh, you've been known to be pretty outspoken in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And, uh but but compared to that past, I mean, what's being outspoken, right? That's right. Yeah. Compared to my grandfather, I, I hear that call to stand up for those um, who are oppressed every day. Well, so Judy, and now we're talking Judy Selden Cohen. <laughs> uh, your journey upstream, because um, we're talking about traveling upstream to some extent, uh, a lot of that's been involved in, in the homelessness area, right? And I think you've told a story, you've done a few videos about scrubbing and something came to you or occurred to you. And uh, talk about that a minute. So for me, the going upstream story is, is my story. I was social justice co-chair at the temple and we were doing all the, the volunteer work, the lifeguarding work that we just read about. And one of those was scrubbing a bathtub in a building called Hall House several years ago in Charlotte that was being prepared for homeless women and families as a temporary shelter. And as I was scrubbing that bathtub, I thought, this could be me. And yes, I went and I scrubbed the bathtub a little bit harder because it was actually pretty revolting, but also, I was motivated to go upstream and figure out what can we do to prevent people from needing temporary shelter and having their own homes. And it was a, it was a pivotal moment for me. So what's the spark then for this particular book? And I understand from some of the information you provided, you got off on different tracks when you started <laughs> the idea of writing this this book. So uh, what what was the spark here that got the two of you together to write? Because it's not easy to write a book, right? Particularly when you got to do a lot of research. You're going back not only in the text of, I guess it's the Talmud and the Torah, but you're looking at all these other things. So what, what was the spark? I had been at Temple about 16 years, and I was starting to think about what my next chapter would be in my professional career. And I'd spoken to a mentor and really was playing out all sorts of options. And she recommended that I write a book um, that captured my passion. So um, I talked about that. I was thinking about ways in which I could inspire other congregations to do the meaningful work that Judy Selden Cohen and I had been doing for so long. So does someone does someone have to persuade somebody else, or who is doing the persuading here? <laughs> so uh, Judy and I are talking about this next step for her, and I give her the same advice, which is if you want to go out and speak, you need a book as a platform. And she said to me, great, let's write a book. And I don't say no to Rabbi Judy. It's really just pointless. Okay. Well, um I think it's great that you've done this, but I'm, I'm a little bit curious. You, you told me at one time you had a title, title 
bagels and bacon. Somehow or other, that doesn't seem to fit the, the narrative here. Well, so one of the <laughs> earlier concepts was writing about Jewish women doing work in the Bible Belt. And so we were looking for something catchy, right? Jews and sure, non-Jews, sure. bagels and bacon. It was the cutest title for a book that was never written. Yeah. But this one did win this National Jewish Judaism Award. I'm not sure you'd have yeah. gotten there with that. T- I don't know. Who no, knows, who knows, and right? we would not have gotten a publisher either. So, <laughs> right, right. Well, let's talk about, so um, we're going to get to some themes here that could apply, you know, across uh, different religions as well. But, uh, you know, like churches, I think synagogues um, are undergoing challenges with membership and attendance. Um, can you speak to the state of the Jewish synagogue in the United States today? Who, who wants to take that? Well, I don't think we're so different than churches in the, in the United States today. We're all struggling to maintain membership and to maintain a um, institutions of relevance. And so more than two-thirds of American Jews are not members of synagogues, and particularly millennials. This generation is less religiously affiliated affiliated than this age group has been over the past four decades. So has attendance dropped from the regular attendees, or is it just that we're not bringing in newer? Because uh, I think, you know, I've heard that Judaism is both cultural, historical, and religious. So you don't have to be religious to be Jewish, right? Well, <laughs> daughter has taught you a lot. <laughs> and that is actually the point of the book, which yeah. is, how do we define religion? Um, when when you ask Jews what makes you what, Jewish, what is essential to your being Jewish? And we were fortunate that as we were starting to write this book, the Pew Center was asking hundreds of Jews this exact question, that um, Jews talk about living an ethical moral life or working for justice and equality or remembering the Holocaust. All of those are tremendously more popular responses than observing Jewish law, which would include ritual practice. So the book speaks to the ways that the majority of Jews identify there as Jews. Yeah, and I was thinking about this this morning as I was looking at uh, my notes again, and I had this question, um, what's more religious, um, prayer or civic engagement? So we, um, we have a cute story in the book. Um, one of the people we interviewed, um, his father prayed three times a day and went to synagogue in the traditional religious Judaism. And Stephen is not tied nearly as much to worship services, but he is totally committed to civic engagement. And he is at synagogue almost every day for this work. Stephen's grandson sees this and says to Stephen that he is the most religious person that the grandson knows. Hmm. And Stephen's still caught with his grandfather's definition versus his own, asks if he is a fraud because of this. And part of the purpose for writing this book was to explain that civic engagement is a legitimate expression 
of our Judaism. But but many Jews actually happen to carry that weight with them. A lot of people say I'm a bad Jew, yeah. meaning I don't go to synagogue or I don't keep kosher or I don't keep Shabbat in traditional ways. And there's a Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Yossi Marcus in California, and he wrote this blog talking about low Jewish self-esteem. And when Jews negatively say they're bad Jews um, because they don't keep traditional observance, Marcus affirms that good Jews are indeed defined by their actions outside the synagogue. He wrote, because you're a good person, or being a good person is fundamental to being a good Jew, to bring godly notions such as justice, righteousness, and kindness into the world. Being a good Jew doesn't just mean going to synagogue. Yes, a Jew, good Jew does go to synagogue, but most of Judaism indeed takes place outside the synagogue. How we behave outside the synagogue matters um, a great deal. And to liberal Jews, we would say... Um, you know, those ethical commandments have incredible weight. Mm. Well, you know, it's probably hard, it's, it's hard for Jews to understand all the different denominations of Christianity as it is for Christians to understand that there are different, I don't know if, the, if denomination is the right word, it, but you've got, you've got Orthodox, you've got Conservative, you've got Reform, and I'm assuming that they all might approach this idea of civic engagement a little differently, or maybe not, or how does that work? They all value the ethical laws of Judaism. In Judaism, sure. we have laws that are, in Hebrew, ben adam between one person and another, the ethical commandments. And then we have commandments that are between a person and God. So the Orthodox would see all of those as having equal weight. And Reform would say that we need to struggle with the ritual laws, and we need to make our decisions based on knowledge um, and commitment to being Jewish. Mm. Well, I mentioned uh, at the lead of this book that uh, it can speak to non-Jews as well as Jews. Um, did you intend that, or was that an accident, or what? <laughs> we were really intentional about the language and the structure of the book, not only to reach non-Jews, but to reach Jews regardless of their background in Judaism. So there's a number of sidebars where we take a deep dive into a topic that you know, maybe some people aren't interested in and they can be skipped without losing the thread of the narrative. But because this message is universal and we didn't want coded language to get in the way of the reader, we were very careful to define our terms, to provide a glossary, and to speak in language that any reader could understand. All right, before we get to this idea of traveling upstream and one of my favorite parts, was the, which is the minion on the move here, which you're going to get to, let's just talk briefly about the structure of the book. we got three parts to the book, right? The first part is recharging the synagogue. Rabbi Judy, what, is, what are we doing in that part of the book? We are trying to create a religion of meaning and relevance because so many Jews of today, they don't want to spend their time inside the synagogue. They want to be outside doing meaningful work, bringing their faith to life. And so uh, Minion on the Move, it's about how do we bring the synagogue to where people are gathering for issues of mm. justice. All right, in part two, recharging ourselves as Jews. Judy, what about that section? In, in this section, we are guiding individual Jews on how to listen to the call of their faith. We are bombarded with asks, with emails, and we choose to respond when that message touches something within us. 
when we respond as a synagogue, we learn the language that helps us understand our faith, because maybe we haven't studied it that much, but if we are out with our synagogue, we learn why this is Jewish, and it treats our synagogue as part of our faith that we can live inside the walls and outside the walls, as opposed to treating it like an island vacation where you mm. go, you refresh yourself, and then you go back to your real life. All right, and then we got, as I'm thinking about part three here, uh, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, these are probably life lessons they've learned, and they're trying to pass those on to the to the rabbis and the leaders in the congregation who are a little, you know, should we take this on? Should we not take this on? Is that what part three is about? Giving us a sort of a blueprint for how to work through these issues within a congregation of balancing religious life in the congregation with stepping on toes outside the congregation? Um, We are absolutely trying to provide (laughs) a guide so that if you are inspired to do this work, you can bring your congregation along with you, you can bring your board along with you, you can bring your clergy along with you. And so we provide a number of different frameworks to help you on that path. One of the favorites that we have is our ladder of civic engagement which goes from volunteering to educating to donating to advocating to organizing and joining a movement and explaining that different congregants want to engage on an issue on different rungs of that ladder. And if you can provide a way to do that, everybody can participate. We also provide a worksheet to analyze what your board wants to do, the expertise of your lay leaders, and how to assess the issues that matter to your congregation. So you pick a model that works in your specific situation. All right. Well, I like that. You, you've given a blueprint. Now we're going to circle back. You've got the blueprint in place. Everything's working. Congress are getting along with the rabbi. Everybody's on the same page. We're going to travel upstream. And I like this parable that you started the book with. It's just got this great image. Things are happening. People are floating down river. We've got to save them. But why are they falling in the river <laughs> in the first place? So um, is this, I know this is, a, is, is sort of a parable about you know, going to the source of the problem to to address it. But because we're going upstream, is, is it fair to say that it's also about fighting the current sometimes to get there? Who wants to take that? So <laughs> every day there is something new that requires us to row harder and, importantly, to row together. One of our guest essays is written by Ruth Messenger, who spent 20 years in New York City politics. And she writes that democracy is not a spectator sport. Civic engagement requires that we hold public officials accountable, that we speak up, and that's hard work. All right, Judy, Rabbi Judy, you've been in the pulpit and you're dealing with cross currents all the time, you know, in that setting. Uh, Are we dealing with cross currents here too, as opposed to currents upstream when you talk about? civic engagement within a congregation? You can be, and that's why we wrote this book, essentially. And I like to say that this book could be called Recharging Religion, How Civic Engagement is Good for Houses of Worship, People of Faith, and America. I speak more often at churches. You might Uh, might have sold more books, right? I I know, and and it's ready. It could easily, we just need the research. That's going to be the next edition. Yeah, it could be. If anybody anybody who's listening to this wants to do the research with me and and help me do the rewrite, we could most definitely uh, create an interfaith version of this book. Um, But no matter where you go, whether you're at a mosque, 
mosque or a church or a synagogue, if you come to your congregation and say, I want to embark on this work of congregational civic engagement, you will likely hear four complaints, whether you're Mm -hmm. Jewish or Muslim or Christian. Complaint number one, political issues don't belong in the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Complaint number two, advocating for others doesn't help Jews or Christians or fill in the blank. Complaint number three, we don't have enough. We don't have a money, enough money, enough volunteers. And complaint number four, civic engagement will divide the congregation. There, there are only four complaints? I mean, Those are on. four <laughs> main complaints. We've done sort of a, yeah. you know, a family feud style. We've yeah. asked a lot of people. Um, yeah. and, and most of them are myths, right? We, we know that when we do meaningful work, the flow of money comes. The flow of money flows in and the flow of money flows out and it enriches the congregation. There is indeed enough. We have enough volunteers. We have enough money to do this work. Um, I think that the most significant complaint is it could divide the congregation. And that's why we need to be really cautious with the work we do. We can find common ground. Mm -hmm. We do a listening campaign. We understand what is keeping people up at night. We find that common ground. We gain some consensus, and then we move forward. On the issues where there is not consensus, we work on those issues as individuals. There are plenty of places for us to get engaged um, in other issues. So there is power in um, working together as a congregation. So one of the upstream battles could be within the congregation itself, right, Rabbi? Judy, you you might have experienced that in the past, perhaps? Perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Most definitely. Any examples of that that come to mind? Oh, gosh, there were so many. I think um, a big moment of friction and tension was the Moral Monday movement. Um, I happened to be in Israel when the Moral Monday movement started. I was on sabbatical, and a a lot of my friends were saying, you know, I'd see the images of them speaking at these large gatherings in Raleigh. And when I got back, a friend asked me to speak, um, and I had an opening on my calendar, which never happened, so it was meant to be. I went to my president, said, "Can, can I speak on education in North Carolina? because we are down at the bottom, close to the last in teacher pay. And the president said, sure. Um, Some of the past presidents recommended I blog and take videos and really bring people along with me on the journey. But in doing so, I probably had 900 shares, especially from our young adults, our kids at college, our high school students. But there were some who felt that the statement Moral Monday was calling those who are running our government, our state government, immoral. So they heard it in a way as if it were an attack on them. Um, And that definitely created waves for the congregation. So there are times, and you don't know what they'll be in a given congregation, when you you can face an intense uh, current that's sort of working against you. And Judy, we talked about inside the congregation. What about those currents outside the congregation? Have you had any experience with that? So after we were finished writing the book, Judy and I did another collaboration in 2018. I volunteered at the Greenspan Center, where she works now, leading a group of 100 volunteers to lobby city council to create more housing solutions for people who are homeless. And the challenge was to pick what is feasible, what is meaningful, and to remain focused and not get distracted and become less effective because there are lots of advocacy groups who want to do lots of different things. And keeping ourselves focused, sharing our advocacy platform with other groups made us much more effective. 
we, we taught people the language of the issue and the art of advocacy, what we call in the book, having people sing in the choir first, and then you become equipped to be able to become a soloist. And in that year, we created a number of really powerful soloists. All right, well, let's, let's move upstream a second here. Um, we've got the Minion on the move. That's not the minivan on the move, right? It's, <laughs> <laughs> no. It has okay. to be larger to bring 10 people along Well, that's right. You have to need a bigger minivan because you've got to have 10, right? Right. Yeah. Well, we've, you know, caravaned <laughs> up to Raleigh. And we've caravaned. Okay. We've taken okay. buses up to Washington to I, do our I work. I heard this for the first time. I was in a – we're doing an interfaith uh, men's group, uh, some Jews and Christians together to learn about each other's religions. That's where I first heard – about the idea of a minion. And it really surprised me that you couldn't say certain prayers until 10 people showed up. I'm like, I don't understand, you know, exactly. What's the, can you give us a little biblical grounding in that, Rabbi Judy? So not long. I just want to understand the 10. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Okay. Well, the 10 (laughs) is grounded in the story of the spies. So Moses sends out spies to scout out the land um, of Israel to see what it looks like, the land of Canaan. And 12 spies go out, one from each tribe. They come back, and 10 of the spies are overwhelmed with fear. They say, we can't possibly conquer this land. The people are giants, um, and we can't do it. And so the people believe the 10. And, and Moses says, you have to get away from this in Hebrew, this evil group. And so you need a group to say certain prayers. What constitutes a group? A group of 10. Where I wish that concept of minion was grounded in reality would be in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because God wants to destroy the city. And Abraham argues and says, well, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you destroy the city on account of when there are 50 righteous people? And God says, no. Won't a little, little negotiating. Right, a little here. negotiating all the way down to 10. Yeah, but no and lower than 10. No right? lower than 10. So for me, that says when you have 10 people committed to a cause, you can indeed make a difference. All right. Well, listeners, uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to have a little reading Uh, from the section of the book uh, entitled Minion on the Move. We're going to do the Writing Life segment. We're going to do a couple more reads. Uh, We're going to find out more about this uh, idea of civic engagement, no matter what congregation uh, makes you happy. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today we're talking design. Fabi. What do you design at Spark Publications? We design beautiful books that are packaging all that amazing copy and content into a presentable package. And you're doing both the covers and the interior of the books, right? We do. So we're designing for marketability. In other words, we design the covers to attract the intended audience, and the interior pages are designed to function as intended for the user and the reader. And this is a wide variety of businesses that you deal with? It is. It's anywhere from um, attorneys to HR professionals to small business owners that have very specific knowledge base. Hmm. You've also done some legacy and coffee table books, uh, beautiful books I've seen them that help showcase and preserve, you know, special knowledge or skill that someone has. Do you have any examples of that? 
Um, one of the most recent we've done is for Mark Paris and his collection of 100 essays inspired by guests on his podcast. And Croggy and Drayson has multiple volumes of duck decoy collections. Mm. So legacy books are printed on that beautiful glossy paper and they have the nice hardback. So they're just a, a work of art in themselves. So is it true that people do judge a book by their cover? 100%. 100%. All right. <laughs> and so where do we find out how to design a good cover? Well, why don't you reach out to info at sparkpublications.com and we can get the conversation started or go to sparkpublications.com backslash books and see some of the things we've already done. All right. Thanks. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Rabbi Judy Schindler and Judy Selden Cohen, and we're talking about the book Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America, but also could be a guide for congregations of any religion or denomination uh, when you're talking about civic engagement. But now we're talking about a minion on the move, and there's a chapter here, and we're going to read a little section. I know, uh, Rabbi Judy, you've set this up a little bit. This is sort of like... I think you use the word praying with your feet, moving forward in life, getting out of the congregation, doing things. So I think it's starting on page 27. Uh, Pick it up whenever you're ready. Okay. Judaism recognizes the power of community. The Talmud notes that any expression of sanctity requires a gathering of 10 Jewish souls, what we call in Hebrew a minion. Healing is found, strength is gained, and celebrations are enriched when we are surrounded by others. There's a humorous tale that captures the inspiration that can arise from assembling such a quorum. Rabbi Pesach Kron told the story of a rabbi in Jerusalem, Rav Yosef Gutfarb, who'd been diligent about attending a daily minion for decades. Late one night, Rav Gutfarb realized that he had missed the evening service. So he raced to an all-night synagogue. Finding only one person inside, Rav Gutfarb called two taxi companies in order to find eight Jewish cab drivers who could come to the synagogue address. When the cabs arrived, he told the drivers to keep their meters running, but requested that they pray in the minion with him. The drivers all agreed, yet after the brief service, every one of them refused to accept Rav Gutfarb's money, honored by his experience, honored by the experience of being a part of the minion. Rav Gutfarb creatively assembled a minion so that he could continue his practice of daily worship. While American synagogues might not have budgets to support Lyft or Uber bills to satisfy their own minion requirements, Rav Gutfarb's ingenuity offers a provocative model. The eight taxi drivers had not come to the synagogue for the minion, but whether out of respect for Judaism or for Rav Gutfarb's commitment to his faith, they refused payment for their metered time. Okay, interesting story uh, uh, to illustrate the point. And uh, now, Judy, you're going to pick it up and uh, read a little section that talks about taking the minion outside the synagogue walls. The Minion on the Move takes our prayer service outside the synagogue walls, coupling communal prayer with the ethical acts of our faith. Ten people can literally change the world the Torah teaches us, but it is unlikely that we can make these changes from inside our houses of prayer. The Minion on the Move brings our prayers to those places where Jews choose to gather for social justice causes. When we assemble as a minion on the move, our prayers 
and our acts of civic engagement make a difference. Through sharing our personal stories and pain and through our proximity to others that allows us to hear their struggles, we join together outside our synagogue walls to work toward fulfilling our collective prayers for a better world. As Jews, our memories are part of our identity as a people. We reinforce who we are, not only by retelling, but also by reliving journeys toward liberation as redefined by each generation. The Minion on the Move creates new memories that meaningfully connect us to our Judaism, rejuvenating us. So Rabbi Judy, this title, uh, Minion on the Move, Jews have been on the move for many years. They were moving through the desert. They were moving... (laughs) We, we are a, uh, a wilderness people. We've known many periods of wilderness wanderings. We've known many exiles, many expulsions, sadly. Um, and we've learned how to create community wherever we are. Mm. And you talked about this concept of uh, praying with your feet. Is this part of the minion on the move idea that if you're out there into the community and you're doing this good work and you're helping to address these social justice issues, that 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 is a form of prayer? I believe it is a form of prayer. And there's a a great rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He um, had a a close friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King. They actually met in Chicago at the Conference on Religion and Race. And Rabbi Heschel opened the conference, and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. closed the conference, and they used the exact same quotes from Amos and from Exodus. Um, After they built that friendship, they worked together to address civil rights and fight for civil rights. And Rabbi Heschel was a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, but he took leave from his work to travel down to Selma. And there's a very famous photo of Heschel and King crossing over the bridge in their fight for voting rights in Selma, Alabama. And what's fascinating is that we, we talked to, we interviewed a lot of congregations and a lot of congregants and a lot of leaders about their work. And we'd say to rabbis, you know, what, what text inspires you to do the work? And of course, rabbis had lots of texts that inspire them to do the work. And then we'd ask congregants and they would freeze and they'd panic. They'd say like, our rabbi tries to teach us text, but really our, our past clergy of our congregation, their marching in the South is what inspires us. And then they pull up this quote from Reverend Martin Luther King, a quote that the other Judy will share. Heschel wrote, for many of us, the march from Selma to Montgomery was both protest and prayer. Legs are not lips and walking is not kneeling. And yet, our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. Dr. Susanna Heschel, Heschel's daughter and a scholar herself, who also wrote the foreword to our book, added that after that march, he added, I felt my legs were praying. So what was interesting was the lay leaders who for the most part, did not come up with a text, they would say, I was praying with my feet. Wouldn't exactly get it the same way, but this idea that what I do outside the synagogue is prayer was what resonated among them. Mm. Okay, so we got this idea of, um, of a collection of Jews, 10 or more, part of this minion, moving forward, moving upstream, fighting injustice, uh, but to get there, to figure out what you're going to fight for, 
you got to reflect. Sometimes you got to pray. This kind of feeds into the part two of the book, recharging ourselves as Jews. And I saw this section of the book where you you have a chapter called listening to the call, and you use a probably going to butcher the word the shema means and what is that how is that G? the shema yeah. is the watchword of our faith right okay. it's the first okay. prayer we're taught we the first prayer we teach our children so when i was a little child my father would come and tuck me into bed or my mother every night and we'd say the shema and mm-hmm. i taught my children that prayer it's the watchword of our faith it's in deuteronomy shema yisrael adonai eloheinu adonai echad hero israel the lord is our god the lord is one but it starts with the word Shema, which means listen, mm-hmm. right? We can't hear or see God's presence in the world when we are too caught up in the chaos mm-hmm. of life. But then it's also followed by a word I'm reading here in, in this chapter. It starts with a V, A-H-A-V-T-A. How do you, how do you pronounce that word? Oh, viahafta. Okay. Okay, the viahafta. <laughs> so the prayer, the Shema, in, in both Deuteronomy and in our prayer book, it leads right into here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it talks about loving God in the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And you say in here that it's no coincidence that that is the central prayer of, of your faith, and then you use that to go out into the world you, to do what you're talking about doing, right? Right. Yeah. And so we've got an example of, uh, I think it's uh, on page 98, and I think, Judy, you're going to read uh, from this section uh, of the book. It's uh, it's an example of this personal call as it speaks to, to Jews, and it has to do with the refugee crisis. Um, so could you read that for us? Of course. The personal call to action that so many Jews feel in responding to the plight of refugees is illustrated in the transformation of Hyas, which was formerly known as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. In its first 120 years, the organization rescued and resettled 4.5 million Jews. As the number of Jews needing a safe haven markedly dwindled, the organization was at a crossroads. It could either close or refocus its mission. Hyas chose the latter path and today helps refugees of all religious and ethnic backgrounds through resettlement, advocacy, and support internationally. Rabbi Jenny Rosen, then Vice President of Community Engagement at Hyas, explains... We used to help refugees because they were Jewish. Now we help refugees because we are Jewish. Because we are Jews and have known exile, we hear more clearly the call of refugees seeking safety on our shores. Because we are Jews and have known oppression, we respond more readily to those fleeing oppressive regimes. Because we are Jews, we feel moved if not commanded, to answer the call, to respond to the cry, and to work to expand our country's embrace of those seeking refuge. So this could be a potentially politically divisive topic, right? Uh, Refugees and uh, immigration and so forth. Uh, Is there uniformity among the Jewish population about how to deal with the immigration crisis or not? 
I don't think there's uniformity among mm. the Jewish population on mm. any topic. Okay. <laughs> but if there's one that resonates most with Jews, I, I mean, I, I would say this is one that resonates greatly with Jews mm. because, mm-hmm. you know, during the Holocaust, there were paper walls of bureaucracy built up that prevented hundreds of thousands from being saved. And we can so clearly see ourselves as those refugees. And the policies we have in place today, the Refugee Convention was created post-Holocaust in order to address that issue. Someone fleeing persecution should be able to be settled in another country. So um, Haya still works with us. I have probably three emails from them yesterday Mm -hmm. because Governor Cooper just wrote a letter to the State Department agreeing to accept refugees into North Carolina. So we still work on this issue, and I think there's um, a lot of passion for this issue in the Jewish community. All right. Well, we're going to shift just for a moment to... uh the writing life segment. So uh, let's let's talk writing for a second. You've written a book uh, ri- uh, together. It's hard enough to write a book by yourself. How do you co-author a book? Yeah. We wrote together for an hour and a half every week for three years. Sometimes we were writing together. Often we wrote sections separately and then edited together. But we read every chapter aloud to each other at least five times. It took us a while to find our shared voice, not my business writing, not Judy's sermon writing. And we had to experiment with technology to figure out how to make this work. Not not just technology, but uh, life and planning and schedules and everything else. So, Rabbi Judy, did you take the research on the historic religious texts and put Judy in charge of something else? Did y'all blend that together? How did you work that out? You know, I think the way I studied Jewish texts is you you always jump in, let's say you're studying the Talmud or you're studying the Bible, you always go back to what you studied last week. So I'm very methodical. And we would really, you know, write a segment together and, and then review that segment and move forward. So I think we we had to create the structure of the book and work within those parameters. So we didn't really separate out what parts we would write. Mm. Early on in the writing, our first year, if you were to read through it, you would know my voice and Judy Seldon Cohen's voice. How, how did you solve that? I mean, did you have some third party come in and say, we need to make you more alike? Or <laughs> um, Judy says we debated every word, and mm-hmm. and that's true. Is that what Jews do? Uh, it is we what do. Jews do. 6,200 pages of the Talmud are a debate. We love to debate. And <laughs> so, so how did you ever finish the book? If you're, yeah. Well, we were, we were on a deadline. If okay. there's one thing that Rabbi Judy and I both do, it's we meet deadlines. But we, we focused on finding that middle ground. You know, my tendency is to write way too much detail. I want to defend and explain a statement with all the arguments you would make in a conference room. And Judy's a rabbi. She preaches from the pulpit. And so her writing is like a sermon. And we would both trim back on each other until we found that middle voice. So what was your intention of trying to find that middle voice? What were you searching for? Well, I think we were trying to find a book that spoke to the widest audience possible. You know, um, a sermon doesn't give the technical parts of moving an issue forward, right? You need the economic argument. It's not the moral argument that's going to win every day, and that's certainly not going to convince city council or county commissioner or representatives. They need to see the economic argument. 
But if it's all an economic argument, it doesn't move people to action and inspire them to move forward. Um, I think we would go back and recraft each other's words. So she would write and I would write and we'd each rewrite each other's words until we ended up by year two, really, our pieces are now seamless and you can't tell who wrote which part. Okay, I'll throw this out to either one of you, but having this experience of writing together with another author, a text that has ended up getting a uh, Jewish National Jewish Book Award, um, which is obviously means you you know it's a credible work. Okay, do you have any advice for other people that want to write together, having gone through what you've been through? So, just as we found a common voice, we also brought different perspectives to this. I have the perspective of a lay leader, and Judy has the perspective of a clergy. And so we each had something different to contribute to the book. And most Jewish social justice books are not written that way. They're written by rabbis for rabbis. And so for us, bringing this unique joint perspective, we we were partners in finding that path. And so if... You're going to co-author a book. I would find someone who compliments you, mm. not who has the same skills and perspectives that you have. So it's not the same uh, Rabbi Judy as consulting editor for this recent book that just came out. It's a different experience entirely to actually write a book with someone else. Um, would you recommend it? <laughs> Highly recommend it. And actually, this article in this new book is written with an Israeli okay. um, about social justice in Israel. Oh, okay. And how powerful to have her voice in my head and my voice in hers if you're talking about working on social justice mm -hmm. issues not only here but overseas. So I love collaboration. I, maybe it's because I'm a twin and I sort of came into this world mm. um, with another soul. But I just can't imagine creating alone, though I, I love to preach and I love to write, but the work of um, putting out a book, it requires discipline. It requires, you know, that weekly commitment, if not that daily commitment and holding someone accountable. So I feel like my writing is so much stronger when I collaborate with co-authors on articles, um, on books, on editorials. I just, I love the voice that other people bring to my writing. So this question I'm going to apply to both of you here. So we start with Judy. How did writing this book um, help your faith journey? I think writing this book legitimized what it was that I felt called to do. Um, I have been an advocate in the community for it's probably now 12 or 14 years, and this book helped me understand just how Jewish that <laughs> is. Mm. How about you, Rabbi Judy? Since I've written the book, I've really been out traveling with the book and speaking at churches. Um, and lately, with this rise in anti-Semitism, I've been preaching a lot more at churches and in the community. I left the congregation, though I'm Rabbi Emerita, and get to dabble in what I love there and teach when I want to, but I left the congregation in order to be a community rabbi. And um, Ari Goldman was a New York Times religion editor, and he went to, he took a sabbatical to go study at Harvard University in the Divinity School. And his first day in class, one of the professors, Diana X, said to him, if you know only one religion, you don't know any. So when you leave the congregation and do this work in the world, and you're working with other people of faith, building power, 
and creating change and joining movements, you really have to know who you are and who the other is in order to convey to them your differences and your commonalities that move you together forward. So I think getting this book into the world has really challenged me in a lot of ways to learn more about other faiths so that I could um, better teach about who I am in relation to them. So you're going to have to admit that Judy Selden Cohen was right when she said you need to write a book to get out there and talk? She was absolutely <laughs> right. She always is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Except when we're fighting over the perfect word for the next <laughs> sentence. We, we battle and oh. we argue till we're both yeah. satisfied oh with the right God. word. Yes. Uh, so we can't, we can't talk about all the gratifying pieces of this without talking about the challenges because you talk about moving upstream. Has there been any criticism, pushback? Do you have... Along the way, did you struggle with, um, you know, and maybe not necessarily in the book itself, but as you get out there into the world, do you see skeptics? Do you hear, mm-hmm. is this a tough battle, to, a tough sell sometimes when, when you're out there talking about it? Or can you not tell because people are always just going to say, yeah, that's great, let's, let's do that. So in the book talks that I've given, the piece that really resonates are the four complaints um, and Judy and I... People can say, oh, yeah, I get it. I, right, because they, they, they may have even I, heard I made, it. I made number two one time. Exactly, I, exactly. <laughs> um, and when Judy and I, Rabbi Judy and I first did this, we did it like family feud. And we had mm. the clergy team on one side and we had the lay leader team on the other. And and it was it was a lot of fun. But I've been using that when I've been out talking by myself. And people really are listening to understand what the Jewish answer is, why our texts say that this is what we are supposed to be doing, but also the examples from other congregations. We interviewed 50 lay leaders and rabbis across the country to get their stories, and we use examples from those interviews to illustrate this is how that congregation solved that issue. And I think as human beings, we all feel better knowing that Someone else has done this, and it's worked for them, and so maybe it could work for us. Yeah, and this kind of segues, and we don't have much time for the third section of the book, but uh, that's sort of the how-to section. But maybe Rabbi Judy, it it speaks to this idea of uh, rabbis, lay leaders, congregations all working together. You use the phrase from Ecclesiastes, a threefold cord is not easily broken. Can you speak to that? Well, I think clergy are very comfortable giving sermons yeah, on they, Friday nights or Saturday mornings or Sunday that's, mornings, that's what right? You do. And by the way, your services are longer than my, than our services, I understand. And you can come and go, right? You oh. can or it, you, it depends what denomination. Okay, I think right. there's greater decorum in the reform movement than in the conservative how long, and orthodox. How long does the service last on Saturday? Typically? On Saturday morning, an hour and a half, hour okay. and 15 minutes. But okay. when okay. I go to the orthodox synagogue, it goes on for hours and hours. So, okay. you know, you come, I like to get there for... You know, the Torah reading. Like an evangelical the, church, perhaps, you know, that might go on for hours compared yeah, to... There yeah, there I, I, you yeah. know, there are no standards in Charlotte. No, we no, have no. 960 churches in right, Charlotte with right. street addresses. So, yeah. uh, but the more traditional you are, the longer the service would be because you're keeping all those, those prayers that uh, we've inherited from one generation to the next, whereas reform, we're comfortable saying, you know what, let's have a shorter service that's more engaging, um, with more music. We want to make it um, moving for people and are not so bound by the tradition. But that being said, rabbis love to give sermons as 
ministers love to preach sermons, um, but how do we move people forward? We really need skilled lay leaders and the congregations themselves. So we can preach all we want about welcoming the stranger, but we can't change policy unless we are working together to get that done. So Mm -hmm. it is a most critical piece that you have skilled, experienced, and wise lay leaders, um, and that you have an exerted effort to bring the whole congregation along with you. So I'm going to have, Judy, if you would read, because this is from the lay perspective. It's in Chapter 7, Part 3. It's on page 169. It talks about uh, what happens when members of the congregation stand together with the rabbi. When members of the congregation stand together with the rabbi, the lay leadership, and one another, civic engagement creates powerful sources of energy for recharging our synagogues, ourselves as Jews, our communities, and our country. On Yom Kippur, the day when the largest number of Jews come to synagogue to express their commitment to their faith, Reform congregations read Moses' final words to the Israelites. In this passage, Moses declares that we stand together as we commit to the covenant with God and with one another as a people. Deuteronomy reads, You stand this day, all of you, before the eternal your God, you tribal heads, you elders, and you officials, all the men of Israel, you children, you women, Even the stranger within your camp, from woodchopper to water drawer, to enter into the covenant of the eternal your God. I, God, make this covenant with its sanctions, not with you alone, but both with those who are standing here with us this day before the eternal our God, and with those who are not with us here this day. So this is a was an interesting chapter to me because having taken that uh, verse, you then sort of tease it out and talk about different aspects. So we don't have time to go through all of it. But I thought this idea of standing was interesting. You've got two words, uh, omdim, is that? Is that? Omdim. 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 And Zavim. Yeah, <laughs> okay, two can, words in Hebrew, just like Eskimos have a lot of word for snow. I can't, I can't do that. So tell us what those mean. So I love this concept of two kinds of standing as a group. The Hebrew omdim means we arise from our seats and stand on our feet. By contrast, the Hebrew nitzavim is an active commitment to stand, firmly grounded. So standing to applaud a lecture, that's omdim. The lecture ends and maybe we're moved, but we're done. Civic engagement means we stand together, committed to an issue, firmly grounded. Nitzavim, we are ready to go to work. And inside this uh, idea of standing with others, there's also reflection. I believe you talk about that in the book as well. Rabbi Judy, thoughts on that? So there's a cycle of social change. And really, social change involves campaigns, just like a development campaign where you want to raise raise money for a new building. You know, you need to listen and create your mission and move forward and achieve that and, and celebrate. It's the same holds true for social justice. First, we listen. Then we study up on the issue. We set advocacy goals that are achievable. We move forward. And then we need to reflect and say, what were our successes and what were our challenges before we begin this cycle again? But there's an important component, not only reflecting, but stopping to celebrate. Yeah, and, and I think you've got an example of this that you were going to talk about? 
You know, we worked years to fight for marriage equality. As a congregation, we took busloads up to Washington to legalize their weddings. And, and all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, it was Friday afternoon, August 10th. It was 2014. It was before the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, we get news that marriage equality was won in North Carolina. And when the legal victory flashed across our phones and computer screens, um, we sent someone out to quickly get champagne flutes, plastic flutes, so that we could have a huge toast as a congregation for Friday night services. And I, I stood on the bima and I, I shared this traditional toast, l'chaim, which means to, to life, but we said to life, to light, to love, and most of all, to equality. And then the next Friday night, we invited all those couples at Temple Beth El who had been legally wed in other states, including on two of the temple's trips to Washington. They are invited to the Bema, the, the stage where we lead services, as part of a special wedding blessing because they were now North Carolina newlyweds. They were now acknowledged by the legal standards of North Carolina. And we stood, the Bema was filled with couples who had dreamed for decades that their home state would acknowledge their equality of love. Prayers had been answered as a result of decades of sustained sacrificial acts of civic engagement, not unlike those that were offered long ago by the Levites in the temple. And the response from the congregation was overwhelming. Eyes were filled with tears. Applause broke out spontaneously. And we don't usually clap. We snap our hands in services. It's more fitting with the decorum of the congregation. But we were, everyone got it at that moment. We had fought so long and hard for civil rights. And, and finally, on this issue, they were attained. So it's really critical to stop and to celebrate our successes and, and to recognize how far along the path we have come on the journey. All right, so we're going to have to bring this to a close. We could talk for another couple of hours on this topic, but uh, we've got in the afterward here another Hebrew word, right? Somebody's going to help me with it. It starts with a V. Vaisu. Vaisu, and uh, it means, and they journeyed, as I understand. So we're going to have uh, each of you read a little section from this chapter of the book. Um, so I believe, Rabbi Judy, you're going first. The Talmudic sage Rabbi Tarfon urges us forward. The day is short and the work is much. It is not your responsibility to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. Living our faith requires us to respond to America's problems even if we cannot solve them completely, nor solve them all. As we each shoulder some responsibility, as American Jews and as synagogues woven into the social fabric of our communities, we garner liberty and justice for more Americans even if not yet for all. We find strength to continue our journey of civic engagement by building bridges across boundaries of faith and race. We maintain momentum by working on multiple rungs of the ladder of civic engagement. We remain motivated to move forward because as Jews, we are called upon to repair the world in which we live and as Americans, democracy empowers us to do this work. We say hineni as individual Jews and hineinu collectively as congregations. Here I am, here we are, as modern links in the chain of our prophetic tradition that instructs us to pursue justice. Well, I'm getting an alert here on my computer that there are eight Uber drivers out there that are waiting <laughs> 
to take the two of you somewhere. I'm not sure where, but there's... <laughs> hey, listen, I want to thank you all very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. Do your homework. Take congregants with you. Use social media to share your work. Make your work an intercongregational experience. Develop strong partnerships with other rabbis and non-Jewish clergy. Weigh carefully whether to act independently as a rabbi or to lead your congregation to collectively take a stand. Create a clear policy on civic engagement for your congregation. Emulate the House of Hillel by respecting opposing opinions. Educate. Balance the topics of your sermons. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.